save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, I welcome back Stephen Capra of Bold Visions Conservation. As you may recall from our last conversation, Stephen has had a front row seat in the conservation movement for decades. Living in the southwest U.S., he's been at the forefront of wolf conservation issues and the politics surrounding reintroduction, ranching, public lands, and the wolves themselves. And this is what we're going to touch upon today, uh, the wolf issue, and uh, we'll be following this along from wolves around the world. So, good morning, Stephen, and welcome back. Good morning. Great to be back. It's great to have you back. So, we're going to touch on a subject that is full of myth, magic, and problems, and woes, and conflict, and seems a very hard line that I wonder if we'll ever, in this near future, be able to um, blur the lines and coexist, wolves and humans, ranching and wildness. So why don't we uh, start a little bit about, give us some background about the wolf issue in the West. Well, I think we've seen an issue that uh, we've gone from basically almost making wolves extinct to slowly bringing them back, um, you know, beginning with the release of wolves in Yellowstone, um, to a point today where now they're being hunted and trapped and slaughtered. And so the question really becomes, have we succeeded? And the other question really in my mind is, what is the long-term goal? And are we working in a uh, succinct way to achieve a common goal? And I think the answer is no, and I think the answer is we don't even know what the common goal is. And I think that's part and parcel of the problem we're facing in the American West today as it relates to wolves. So, um, I just do want to be clear. Now, there are wolves in California, the California gray wolf, right? Well, what's happened is that they have had wolves migrate down into California. There was at least one. But they're not, there's not a subspecies in California. It's just that some wolves had, had migrated into Oregon and then one wolf had gone down into California. Okay, so I do want to be clear. We do have wolves in the West, and they have been here. And this is what we're going to um, talk about today is, you know, back in the 70s, they were pretty much extirpated from the West and the, the continental United States. And then the reintroduction in Yellowstone. And um, those wolves have been uh, successful in uh, procreating and creating new packs. And there have been two or three wolves that had successfully migrated as far south as the Grand Canyon, only to end up shot, along with the collared wolves in the Yellowstone Project that were shot. So let's try and figure out and discuss what is the problem here. You know, we seem to accept them, relatively speaking, in wildlands or national parks, but wolves move. They're resilient, they're pack animals, and they move. So this is where the problem starts to come in, when they start moving and dispersing and relocating. So let's talk about this for a bit and the issues around this. 
Well, I think the first thing to look at um, is the fact that when they're dispersing, there really isn't a big issue. It's a perceived issue. Um, And a lot of this has to do with mythology, and a lot of this has to do with the history that ranchers continue to, to utilize. Um, in their days, in their grandfather's days, it was, there was no wolf that was a good wolf. There were only bad wolves. And um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but most of it is ignorance uh, at the end of the day. And a lot of this came from the fact that early ranchers were taking over wolf habitat uh, and were coming into ranges where wolves were already pre-existing. Um, and today, <clears throat> what we have is what we see, I think, I think the wolf issue is one of those polarizing issues that we see um, so dramatically uh, being displayed in our country. We know the divides we're seeing in our country with Donald Trump as president and the reaction that that's occurring. We've seen the, the race riots. We've seen the violence that occurred in Virginia and other places. And in a way, we're seeing a reflection of that and have been seeing a reflection of that even before Trump. Uh, when it comes to wolves. And the reason is simply this. Um, you know, when the wolves were reintroduced in Yellowstone, uh, an extraordinary effort was made by the conservation community and by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, to go out and talk to communities that were going to be surrounding Yellowstone Park and to make clear that they really felt that, you know, at some point wolves would migrate and that there would be a need for coexistence. And I think, so to speak, a lot of butter was put on the bread to get those first ranchers to be supportive. Um, But the bottom line was there really wasn't great support. There never was. Um, And, again, it has to do with the uh, pervasive way of the livestock industry. Um, Let's get into that a little bit because now we're talking about federal lands and grazing rights that are, are, are entrenched and embedded in this ranching history. And this is a lot of what has changed. Wildlife is being pushed ever further into smaller corridors, smaller habitats, but we do have immense wildlands and wilderness that is perfect wolf habitat. But we have this man-made issue of cattle going in there. So let's spend a little bit of time on what is creating this, this, these ruffled hackles. Well, again, this comes back to the livestock industry and a strong core belief that these Western public lands are theirs to profit from. And therein lies some of the divide. I mean, the creation of the national parks, the creation of public lands uh, were created for Americans, uh, making all of us owners of that land. But when you go into rural pockets of the West and you have people in Nevada or Montana or New Mexico who have been leasing that land for generations, they have a sense of ownership. It's misguided. And it's only backed by primarily Republican lawmakers uh, who continue to perpetuate the idea that, you know, these lands really are there for the profit to be made. Uh, and they tend to ignore the incredible value of wilderness and wildlife and our national parks. Um, and therein, again, we have this problem. And so ranchers have been emboldened over the years. Um, and whenever they've really been seriously challenged, I mean, we can go back to, say, 
when former Albuquerque Mayor Jim Baca was put in, in charge of the BLM in the first years of the Obama administration, I mean, he went directly at ranchers and said, you know, we're going to raise grazing fees. Um, we're going to do some things to really try to improve the land and coexist with wildlife. And he was gone in six months. And so whenever someone puts some bold ideas on the table directed at the ranching interests, um, they have an incredible force that they can garner uh, with Western representatives, Western senators, um, to push back on the idea of moving into the 21st century. Um, Again, you're talking about people that live an isolated and rural lifestyle. They're not really up to changing, and they haven't been for generations. And frankly, in a lot of places, like I see here in New Mexico, uh, most of these ranchers are simply dumping their cattle on these public lands. Um, It's not like this idea people have that every day they're out there working hard with the cattle and moving them in a constant motion. They're just dumping them on the land. And many of them, uh, if you take people who ranch here in the Albuquerque area, Many of them dump their cattle on public lands and then work jobs in the city all week, and then maybe they go out and take a look on the weekends. So So what what we're talking about here is also a shift in the ranching community. So let's not paint all ranchers with the same brush. We do need ranchers. It is a lifestyle that is... um, you know, embedded in the West, the, the ranching lifestyle. We're coming up to the sticky wicket of how we use the public lands for a specific thing, cattle, which is changing, you know, the meat-eating community is changing. But we do need ranchers and we do need a coexistence. But what you just said is a shift. They're not out there range-riding their cattles like the cowboys of old. They're taking jobs in the urban area and putting their cattle out there. And now it's about, you know, an industrialized process. So let's, let's focus here just a little bit that, you know, this lifestyle of open spaces. And there are many ranchers that were toward conservation and conservation easements but it seems to always come down to when it's wolves and this you know conflict over the same resources land and some cows being taken or some sheep being taken that's where the rubber hits the road so let's um let's let's talk a little bit about this shift and how the the politics of this have gained sort of um I can't think of the word, um, gained traction to keep our public lands for the ranchers and how the ranchers use that argument and killing for conservation. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, uh, <clears throat> I've mentioned some ranchers that are in the urban interface, but primarily you're talking about ranchers in rural communities that are not getting second jobs in urban areas. I think another mythology that people have related to this is that, you know, when they think of ranches, they they imagine that these ranchers own hundreds of thousands of acres of land, and then maybe they lease a little bit of land. And in generally speaking, it's the opposite. They own a small ranch, uh, and they lease hundreds of thousands of acres of land. So that's a, a very important distinction. And we're dealing with people that are primary, primarily leasing public lands. And I guess I would ask this question uh, as we talk about this. If you lease an apartment, there are certain things that you must do in order to continue leasing that apartment. You know, you've got to keep it clean. You've got to pay your rent. You've got to be 
you know, respectful of your neighbors. These are sort of basic characteristics you would assume you would have if you were renting a space, renting a home, even renting a vacation home. Well, ranchers are renting public land, in essence. That's what they're doing. Um, And when they're renting it, there should be some regulations that are enforced. And there are regulations that are out there. Uh, But if you take a look at Western public lands, you would be scratching your head and saying, what are the regulations? I mean, we see incredible degradation of the land. Um, we see incredible degradation, degradation of the waterways. And you ask yourself, if there are regulations in place, why are they not being enforced? In some cases, they're enforced. But it's a very slow process, and it's met, is pushed back by the ranching community uh, it, with a constant pressure on uh, our representatives not to make these regulations enforceable. Then when it comes to the wildlife, you know, it is, we are talking here about wolves, but people need to understand if you go out to most ranches, if you get into a rancher's truck, they're going to have a shotgun right there, um, which is used to kill anything on site, a coyote, a mountain lion, anything that comes out that could potentially harm a cow is usually dead on arrival. Um, And I'm not saying every rancher is this way, but I am saying there is a predominance of this in the ranching community. Um, And and there is, like anything, where you have peer pressure, there is a peer pressure. If you have one ranch and you're not killing coyotes and then the rancher next to you is having more coyotes on his land, he's going to pressure you to take care of those coyotes. And so that's just human nature. And so here we are, um, you know, in this time where we have a serious problem with wolves. I want to get back to the wolf issue because wolves are the most public um, specter we have with ranchers in our public lands because the wolf reintroduction has been so popular. It has been something that people have been so excited about. And at the same time, there's been an element of people in the livestock industry who've been dead set against this all along. And one thing, as I've mentioned to you before, the ranching community is very good at is saying no and then holding to that position and not yielding. And when you are up against somebody who is unwilling to yield, it becomes a a very difficult bargaining position. How do you bargain? How do you negotiate with a person or with uh, an industry who just says, no, we don't want wolves. And if you bring wolves back, we're going to kill them. And then use all their lobbying power and interest in legislatures and with state game commissions to push the envelope to make sure that wolves don't have a path forward to a true recovery. Now, the irony to it all is now we're in a situation where I think a lot of people who really love and care about wildlife are just feeling immense pain and suffering as they see on Facebook blogs and, and, and on constant, constant social posting the images of wolves being shot by children, by adults, the images of them being caught in traps and being tortured, um, and the laughter of people that are doing this barbaric act. And so it's turning to a place where, you know, it's benefiting again the livestock industry because some people are beginning to say, I don't want these wolves released just to be tortured. 
And so we're headed into a very difficult territory. And frankly, the conservation community has not been responding in a cohesive manner to this issue. And therein lies part of the problem. So you touched on an, an important issue, um, killing contests. There's uh, several organizations out there highlighting where big prize money is uh, offered for uh, those who can go out and kill the most carnivores, whether it be wolves, foxes, or uh, coyotes. And these are still going on, and it's offering big money. Let's talk about these killing contests. How are they able to still go on when there's so much exposure about what's going on in their the cruelty and the horrific um just the whole horrific idea of them that it's a big party and um what kind of pressure can we put on this to stop that that aspect of it well <clears throat> once again these kind of killing contests have the full support of the lives livestock industry um and they're welcomed uh, with open arms by that, that group. That means that elected officials who support the livestock industry tend to uh, turn their back on the issue of this. This is a fascinating issue, Stephen. So right now we need to step away for a break. Stick with us because we have a lot more to talk about on the red line between uh, wolves and people. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Our Wild World with my guest Stephen Capra. And we're talking about wolves in the American West. So Stephen, we had just finished the last section with and everybody doing an all-out war on removal of wolves from uh, public lands and uh, everything for the cattle industry and the huge backing it has politically. So there's another thing that happens here that I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of, which are the killing contests and um, just how awful this whole thing is and that they offer huge prize money there's it becomes a big family deal let's bring the kids out and go bag as many coyotes wolves and foxes and carnivores and predators that we can over a weekend and the toll that it's taking on the the wildlife ecosystem so let's let's spend a little bit of time are these killing contests do they take place on our public lands or do they take place on private lands well sometimes they've taken place on public lands i know there's been enormous pressure here in new mexico to push them uh and they've relocated a number of them to uh private lands that are usually bordered by public lands I think the the first question you've got to ask yourself is what has happened to the sportsman community when they can sit by idly and allow something like this to happen? I mean, it's a complete disgrace. This is a slaughter of wildlife. Um, it is uh, degrading animals and teaching youngsters to to look at animals in a degrading manner, um, not respecting their life, not respecting life in general. Um, the whole thing is complete madness, um, and it, you know we even had a game commissioner on the New Mexico Game Commission who had been involved in killing contests. So it gives you an idea of the level of people that are in positions of power that are working towards the killing uh, of species like this that are critical. Uh, to maintaining a healthy ecosystem. And so, you know, this has become a big thing. It's become, uh, I think, something that people are wearing much as they are in the Trump uh, world. It's us against them, them against us. And so we have this thing that where people are very dug in and are getting more and more happy with these killing contests, promoting them more. Uh, showing their support and showing these savage images of small children killing coyotes and, you know, things of this nature. Um, and it's, it's disturbing. And again, it's, it's such a desecration of wildness. And, and it's such a, such a, you know, it's so ironic to me that uh, so many of these people, um, if, you know, if you ask them about something like abortion, they would be so against it, and then they go out and they'll slaughter 10 or 15 coyotes and think nothing of it. And so it strikes me as, uh, you know, it's paradoxical in one way, and it's incredibly tragic to the wildlife, and um, it, it, it's more of a debasing of our view of the wild world as we continue to destroy it. 
you know it's, as, it's definitely a breakdown and a, di- a dichotomy that is going on in the the mental landscape of folks that that you know will allow this kind of behavior if people did this and went out on a killing contest for a weekend to kill as many whatever minority group or person they didn't like it would not be it would be considered psychopathic behavior but the whole point that it's okay to do it to animals is a lot of what this program has been talking about uh, prior to this conversation on wolves specifically that individuals matter and that uh, the wild life and the ecosystem is necessary to the form and function of this planet and to our very future of survival so let's get a little bit more into um i have another question of what we that refers back to uh the first section so ranching on public lands versus private lands so you had said that most of these ranchers have very small ranches and then put the cattle out onto public lands what how could we turn it around that or is it possible that ranchers would need to have and graze their cattle on their own land rather than subsidized grazing fees on public lands? Well, I think the first thing people need to understand is we could supply all the meat we need in this nation without ever going west of the 100th meridian. I mean, we certainly have the lands in the Midwest and the East where we can graze cattle and there's sufficient rainfall to take care of the problem. This is just a, this is really just a welfare benefit that's gone on for far too long in the West. Um, That's the first part. I'd say the second part about this is, um, you know, I think there are wealthy ranchers who certainly have private lands that they can graze cattle on. I mean, we have people in the West like Ted Turner. He doesn't graze cattle, but he grazes bison. And in New Mexico alone, he owns a million and a half acres of land, and it's private. Uh, well, it's private public. Um, but he owns vast tracts of private land where he could graze what he needs. But those people are few and far between. Um, you have some like the Simlocks and others that are up in Idaho, and you have them in each state will have different variations. But most ranchers are leasing most of that land and have a small uh, private allotment that's generally in the middle of all of what they're leasing or on the one side of what they're leasing. And so, you know, the other issue really is how is it that, you know, this past year, uh, the the cost of a, 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 a cow-calf on our public lands, the price went down. How could we be charging less at a time when beef prices have been high, generally speaking, and when the government seems to be uh, spending money like crazy, we're, we're evidently giving another subsidy to the ranching interest by lowering the cost of uh, cow-calf on public land. Uh, you bring up another really critical issue here of, you know, there's plenty of room on the other side of the 100th meridian to raise the beef that we need. So, and in the West, it's pretty arid in the area that we're talking about so and you alluded to this earlier with the degradation let's spend a little time here so the west is does not get the rainfall on average that the east does 
and now we're putting hundreds of thousands of cattle into public lands and the degradation that this biomass causes and what it eats and removes for the wildlife, deer, other ungulates, which is what you know the carnivores prey upon, whether it be wolves, coyotes, foxes, or mountain lions. So let's talk about this a little bit. The, uh, the point of grazing lands that have gone down, the price has gone down, beef has gone up, and yet this mass of land is being further degraded. Well, further degraded, it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars if we ever bother to spend it to to rehabilitate the land. Odds are they're not ever thinking of really, truly rehabilitating the land. Then let's take, for example, New Mexico. We haven't had measurable, measurable rainfall since October where I live, okay? We have not had measurable rainfall since October. I have to say it again. And here we are, you know, in the middle of February. And what I'm trying to say is, in southern New Mexico, as an example, we've probably still got cows out on the land. Now, if it hasn't rained since October, you've got to ask yourself, what are they eating at this point? And then the second question is, <clears throat> what they're eating, <clears throat> how is it affecting what wildlife is eating at this point? Because the same drought that's affecting the cows and the calves out on that land is affecting the wildlife out on that land. And if you think it's bad now, if we don't get measurable rainfall before summer, we're going to have fires burning all over the place. And so we've got a serious problem in the West. And the last thing we need is cattle running around in these arid landscapes causing even more problems uh, than we can deal with as we're speaking. Um, you know, the landscape has been so changed by the introduction of cattle. You go to southern New Mexico, it's just giant creosote fields. Um, that used to be grass that was, you know, chest high. Um, and we have, there's just been so much degradation in you know, our well, listeners in Africa can uh, relate to this in terms of the pastoralist communities that are bringing in more and more cattle. And, uh, you know, aid has built wells. So um, as these communities can range further and get water further in between uh, slaughter points to home points, what it's doing is creating corridors of deforestation and desertification and uh cattle and starving animals because it's in drought as well. So I'm sure our listeners on other parts of the planet that live in semi-arid and arid communities understand this issue. This is not particular to the U.S., but what we're highlighting today is it's not just happening in Africa. It's happening here in our Western lands. So, um, Stephen, let's, let's move on a little bit to talking about wolves themselves um, and, and highlight to our listeners and the public what is so fabulous about wolves, why we need them and the different kind of wolves we have here in the U.S. Well, we have, I mean, wolves are such an amazing predator and they're such an important part of, of keeping an ecosystem balanced and I think most people have seen all the stories. I mean, Yellowstone used to be so full of, of elk, they didn't know what to do, and the elk would lay down right in the middle of the river. They had no fear. And, you know, the reintroduction has changed that. We've got willows growing on the waterways. The elk are constantly in motion. Their numbers have dropped. 
Um, you know, the, the health of the land, the grass is coming back in places. Trees are growing in places. So many things that were being just absolutely eaten up by the, the grazing of elk nonstop, much like we see with the grazing of cattle. And so here we are, and we, we can see dramatically right before our eyes the very importance of this. We see how it's transforming the health of the land. And we know that if we could do this across the West, how it would help and improve the landscape. You know, without men having to go in there and start making the improvements, the, 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 the wolves are like the first object that can really come in and do the heavy work of really improving our landscape. They keep wildlife moving. They keep ungulates moving. It's super important to us. And yet we have this insane ignorance that's being perpetuated. It's the same ignorance that allows these killing contests where suddenly we paint an animal as all bad and having no redeeming qualities. And, you know, you were saying, well, you know, we see this in the West. Well, we're seeing it in the East. I mean, you know, I, I, I was shocked when I went back East several years ago at the rate in which people I knew were going out and killing coyotes. And they, their answer to me was, well, all coyotes are bad. Um, and, and part of that it resulted in the destruction of the red wolves that are there on the North Carolina coast, where here we had an endangered species being protected, we had a wealthy landowner next door who didn't really like having them there. And we have this whole problem now of money's being removed and uh, stopping the program and people going out and, and, and killing animals that are in desperate need of protection. Likewise, as a result of all the negative publicity in the West of, of the wolves being started to be killed again, that's lit a fire in some of the farmers and, ra- and ranchers in the Midwest who are saying, well, geez, if they're starting to kill them out there, we need to be able to kill more here. And so all of this is going in a direction. And it's so, it's, what's crazy about it is when you ask the vast majority of Americans, they fully support wolf reintroduction, whether they're in the East, whether they're in the West, whether they're in the Midwest. They want wolves. But... When it comes down to it, there seems to be this feeling of like, oh, well, we have to sort of support these people in the rural areas, and there must be something to it. And, you know, science doesn't show there's something to it. Science shows us if you kill those wolves, then there's likely going to be more deprivation of your cattle as a result of killing the alpha male or killing the alpha female. And so we know scientifically it doesn't work, but we live in a time where science is being so put down by one party uh, and one president that people aren't taking science as seriously as they used to. And these voices of ignorance are being given free reign to control what's going on. Now, I've argued for a long time that one of the biggest mistakes the conservation community has made is this bending over backwards effort to uh, get allies in the rural community. Um, I think it's misguided. I think, if anything, an educational process in rural communities about the value of wolves wouldn't be a bad thing. But I can tell you, Ellie, as I've faced in a number of situations, when I've gone into rural communities in this state, 
And I've asked to give presentations at schools and things like that. I've, we've been blocked by the schools. They wouldn't let us come and make the presentations. Wow. Um, and that's pressure from the ranching community not to allow presentations to be made. And so there's a, a, a defiant effort uh, to perpetuate ignorance and not to allow future generations to change their view on this. And that's a very difficult situation that we face. Well, at this moment, you know, let's talk about this some more in uh, our next section because right now we need to take a break. So, listeners, once again, please visit B as in boy, V as in Victor Conservation dot org, Bold Visions Conservation, and check out their blog. And there's a tremendous amount of information and data on the site, and a whole page dedicated to the various uh, kinds of wolves we have and what Bold Vision is doing so stick with us and we will be right back the future of online tv is here view exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else visit voiceamerica.tv today wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Our Wild World. I'm Ellie Weiss and my guest, Stephen Capra. And we're talking about the history and uh, the wolf 
issue, uh, the conflicts that are going on today that have been going on for a long time and that uh, as much as many people love wolves and want and understand the science behind the need to have them in our ecosystems, the ranching community that surrounds much of this land that is available and excellent habitat for wolves are dire dire consequences against it and what it's doing to these ecosystem architects apex predators that we need so i've been watching a series cnn the 60s and this is when the u.s went through a very tumultuous period and the environmental laws started coming in so what i noticed was that these environmental laws we're mostly geared toward people. We have the right to clean air. We have the right to clean water. And we have the right to enjoy wildlife and um, habitat and get out there and, and national parks. But now the big difference that's happening 50 years later is we're finally understanding that the non-human beings that live in these landscapes also have the right to clean air, clean water, the right to, to pursue space and procreate. So let's talk about this a little bit. When you go in and do presentations, do you bring this aspect into the conversation? Well, I, what I try to do is, is, yes, I do try to bring that into the conversation. And I think that the conservation community has gone through a lot of uh, shifts in their thinking. And, uh, you know, a lot of this comes from, you know, grant makers sitting down and, and coming up with concepts and then pushing it on the conservation community and others. And you'll, you'll, you'll notice the metamorphosis. So in the 60s, we have this profound and I think much more real response to things where people had gotten fed up with rivers on fire and not having protected lands and, and things of this nature. And out of that came so many important acts, um, you know, clean air, clean water. But we also got the Endangered Species Act. And we also moved towards protecting big areas of land in Alaska and other things. Um and then everything got a little cute where we try to say in more recent years, things like, well, there's a monetary value to everything. So everything got kind of put in terms of dollars and cents because people felt like, well, that's a way a person could understand wildness. If wildness suddenly was worth $40 million, people would say, oh, well, then we should protect it. The whole, well, if it pays, it stays argument. If it pays, it stays. But, you know, it, this has to come from the heart. This is about respect and there is still a deficit of respect for wildlife uh, and for animals across the globe but we are we are getting to that place where people are there's such an awakening and people do understand that you know these are very important uh, parts of our world and they have to be respected but that is slow to come in a lot of places and 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 we've seen the effects of that as it relates to wolves i mean we've we've seen such a resistance based on something that isn't real i mean i've been in the wolves i've been in the woods i have come face to face with wolves they have not attacked me and tried to kill me they have looked at me with curiosity and they have moved on in our state, we have Mexican wolves. Mexican wolves are half the size of a gray wolf. They're like a, a small dog, I mean, really. And we've got ranchers here. They, they built 
cages at the bus stops for their children to be in these cages so they would be, in theory, protected from the wolves. It's complete hysteria based on ignorance. And so, you know, what I think we have to do is, first of all, I want to get back to one really important thing. What is the conservation community doing today? We saw what they did in the 60s, as you pointed out. People came together. That was a grassroots rebellion about what was going on. And, you know, I think we're at a point here where we're, uh, you know, setting the stage for another grassroots rebellion. The conservation community has been tone deaf to some extent on this. They, they continue to sit here with an argument that they're going to reach out and find common ground with the ranchers. You may find common ground, but you're not going to find common ground unless you put some pressure on the ranching community and the livestock industry. Um, and, you know, one of the things I suggested, I ran into, literally, almost knocked one of our senators over the other day. I was in a store, I didn't see him, and, and uh, we about knocked each other over walking down. That's Senator Martin Heinrich um, of New Mexico. And I said to him, I said, Senator, I, I, w- I want to talk to you for a moment. And he was gracious. He allowed me to speak with him. And I said, you know, I said, one of the things we've seen for a long time was during the Obama administration, Republicans kept pushing legislation, even though they knew they weren't going to get it passed, even though they knew they weren't going to get it signed. They were putting legislation out there to give their core supporters hope and a vision. And I said, what has to happen right now is Democrats need to sit down and create a great vision for conservation moving forward. And not just a great vision, a bold vision of where we're headed. And I outlined a few things in my mind to him, uh, you know, an end to trapping, period. You know, uh, an end to any kind of killing of wolves in the West at this point. You know, moving forward with bold and progressive ideas about widespread landscape protection. You know, overriding what the Republicans are doing on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. You know, changing concepts and putting it into a legislative package that people could see and be inspired by. And at the the cornerstone of that is the wolf. You know, we do not need to be killing them. We don't ever need to kill them. Uh, You know, predators are self-regulating. We don't need to go through all this rigmarole that is based on ignorance and unscientific. And we need to be as if Democrats want to have the mantle of being the true conservationists. The time has come for them to really put out something that gets people talking and thinking. And the conservation community then would be in a position to go and support measures like that and go and create tactics that would support legislation like that long term. I don't see us getting it from the Republican Party anytime soon. And therefore, we have to depend on Democrats. And Democrats are putting a lot of energy into DACA and other issues. And they have sat here while we are literally being stampeded on the conservation front, from the EPA to the, you know, the uh, national parks and their situation, to everything always coming back to the ability for people to hunt and kill in such ways that are irrational to stable wildlife populations, especially when we're going after predators. And so I think that 
We need to support a great vision. We need to give the Democrats that vision. And that's a grassroots buildup of a vision. We see it in local communities where people are trying to do things uh, to make government better. We need to do this as a collective when it comes to our environment moving forward. And frankly, we haven't seen anything bold in a long time. You know, that was bold in the 60s when people were saying, we're not going to stand for the river burning anymore. And we saw 20 or 30 years later how amazing that is when you have communities that now make the waterfront the centerpiece of their cities when it used to be the disgrace. Imagine what our public lands can be if we can start moving some of this cattle out and doing more restoration, if we can expand our national parks. You know, we haven't created a new national park of a, a viable piece of land. We've taken some areas that were monuments and made them parks in recent years. Why don't we create a million-acre tallgrass prairie national park? Why aren't we putting out visions like that and, and demanding more of politicians to make it? Why aren't we creating parks where we're bringing wolves and, and getting them into the parks? Why doesn't Rocky Mountain National Park have wolves? And you know, well, we have it, it all- may soon, um, in the sense of there were there was a wilderness workshop here, um, and the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project is working to reintroduce wolves to Western Colorado. But this, what you're talking about, brings a point to my mind. Then that big conservation. Uh, here in the United States tends to focus on megafauna elsewhere, elephants, rhino, lions, giraffe. We're hearing the uh, trophic cascade of consequences and ripple effects across other lands elsewhere, especially that huge continent of Africa. But there seems to be a disconnect in our U.S. citizenry that is not realizing that we have huge problems, as you've been um, highlighting for us, right here at home in our own backyards, in that we're killing off the very important species we need, um, our ecosystem architects. So, when we talk about bold visions, how do you, and, and I loved what you just talked about, so how do we organize and gain traction to get people in the U.S. to turn their focus and their dollars and big conservation and their hearts and their passion to the problems that we're facing with our very own uh, wildlife and big carnivores? Part of that is And mesocarnivores, sorry. Yeah, well, part of that is education. I mean, I think that, you know, for example, where in the conservation community are we going to the eastern United States and educating people about the the plight of the West? Um, That's the population center of our country, and yet most people there have no idea what's going on. Yeah, a lot of kids are doing presentations on rhino, elephant, and lion, you know, raising raising awareness and raising funds for that. So how do we, how do you get into schools and we change this conversation to our, not to say drop off conservation elsewhere, but how do we highlight more of what the conservation organizations here like Bold Visions and Project Coyote and Predator Defense and many others besides just Defenders of Wildlife to educate the kids in our schools, especially here in the West, the need for this bold vision for our own wildlife? Well, it requires, for a small organization like mine, it requires funding. Um, I don't have the ability to get out there like a a mega group does. Um, And I think that what we have is uh, 
it's a little bit like uh, uh, we have certain conservation groups that have enormous wealth and they, they are perpetuating a message of cooperation that while I think is a healthy message in the long term is not sufficient message for where we are today. We cannot sit there and continue to talk about simple cooperation while animals are being tortured and slaughtered in the American West. And that is the fate of wolves and uh, coyotes and even mountain lions in the West right now, in many parts of the West, as a result of our so-called efforts at cooperating. And And even deer and elk and the other ungulates. You know, when we talk about building up their population numbers, it's not and bighorn sheep. It's not for the ecosystem. It's so that we can hunt them. It's so that we can hunt them. And that whole mindset has to change. <clears throat> and it's also, we are allowing trapping to continue in so many states. And it's just barbaric. And why are we allowing this in this day and time? Why would we allow any animal to suffer to that level? And yet, that's what we're allowing, and this is part of this bargaining that we keep doing, this kind of thing. And I've talked to some conservationists who kind of look at me and say, well, you know, it's not going to happen in our lifetime. It's going to be, you know, two or three generations from now. And, you know, I can remember when I started out in conservation, people telling me, well, you know, they were in their 80s, and they said, well, you know, I'm not going to see the end of ranching, but by the time you get my age, it'll be gone. Well, it's not going to be gone. And nothing's going to be gone if we continue to tolerate and allow ignorance to pervade. And if we don't fight back and we don't force change within the ranching community. And the only way to force that change is enormous pressure being equally put across the West. And it's bringing in our partners from the East to employ that pressure as well. And we have got to create bold visions with our country for how we're going to move forward on conservation in the 21st century and beyond because we are slowly dying if we don't. Well, you bring, we up, you bring up an excellent point. So we need education in the schools to our youth, to the parents, to the ranching community. So listeners, you know, what you can do is A, donate and go to the website bvconservation.org, Bold Visions Conservation, and you can donate. But even if you don't have the money, what you can do is start the conversation in your community, in your area, and request that schools or your um, public officials bring in speakers such as Stephen and the other organizations that we mentioned here, Project Coyote. They're very um, effective in California. Predator Defense, um, Bold Visions Conservation, the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. We have to start sensitizing now uh, our, our communities and our public to what we're doing to our wildlands in killing off the carnivores. So um, it's very critical at this point in time that we change our mindset, as Stephen said, and that you know we bring focus right here to our own backyards and what we need to do here. I agree with you fully. So, um, once again, folks, uh, that's Bold Vision, boldvisionsconservation.org. Please do check out that website. And, um, Stephen, we have just a couple of minutes here. What would be um, our final takeaway today? 
Well, I think we have a lot of challenges, but I think we can see that there is a way forward. Um, the way forward is with determination. Uh, the way forward is with uh, a real vision and a willingness to do what it takes to get that vision th- uh, through. And that means knocking on doors, like you said, beginning conversations with your neighbors, um, and not being afraid to be strong for wildlife. I think that's the most important thing. Wildlife is a gift to all of us, and we can't sit by and watch them in agony, withering in pain, and being freed only to be tortured. They need to be freed to be free. And this is what we've been talking about, you know, animal uh, well-being versus animal welfare, and that every individual matters, not only in wildlife communities, but it's a really strong message today that every person matters, and we need to speak up, we need to speak out. The time is ripe, we're listening, so this is what you can do to make a difference today. It's not always about money. Money is certainly needed, and if you can, please donate to some of these organizations like Bold Visions, but even better, you know, request Stephen to come into your school and be willing to pay the costs of that presentation. This is how we're going to move forward. And as Stephen had said a minute ago, you know, we're on this uh, precipice where we're seeing everything being lost. We're also on the same precipice of seeing everything turn around and uh, the mindset changing that everything matters. We have the science, we have the data, we have the know-how. What we need is the mental landscape shift. So, Stephen, it's been fabulous talking to you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I do, too. So we're going to talk some more uh, coming on uh, about some other issues that you're very knowledgeable on. But meanwhile, everybody, uh, why don't you step out into your wild world and tune in next week to our wild world. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest, Stephen Capra. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 